The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. An early edition with updates to follow. This is Wednesday, June 7th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting the show by using and bookmarking the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. Well, tomorrow's the big day, or today, depending on when you're listening. Actually, every day recently has been a big day in the swirling controversy over the Trump campaign's ties to Russian interference in the 2016 campaign. Today, we learned that after a February meeting with Trump, then-FBI Director James Comey was so shaken, so disturbed by the inappropriateness of what Trump had said in that meeting, Comey asked Attorney General Jeff Sessions to never leave him alone with Trump again. The New York Times reports that Comey confronted Sessions the day after Trump had asked him to end the Russia investigation into then-National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. The New York Times learned of this by talking with law enforcement officials, past and present, who heard from Comey that he distrusted Trump, deeply distrusted him. Comey's fear was that meeting privately with Trump could jeopardize this vital investigation. Normally, the FBI and the Justice Department try to wall themselves off from any White House to avoid even the appearance of political interference or any attempt to obstruct justice. But Comey came away from his confrontation with Jeff Sessions unsatisfied. Sessions reportedly told Comey he couldn't guarantee Trump wouldn't try to buttonhole him again. More about Sessions in a moment. But this breathtaking story raises another question the fired FBI director will have to answer tomorrow when James Comey, private citizen, testifies under oath before a congressional committee investigating Trump and Russia. Why didn't Comey report before now Trump's attempts to kill the Russia investigation? Why did he keep that secret? He had told other people in the FBI, but only a few, the few he felt he could trust, according to the New York Times sources. It's been called must-see TV, and the ratings for the live coverage at 10 a.m. Eastern tomorrow were expected to match those of election night itself. Just as they did on election night, bars in D.C. are having viewing parties for Comey's testimony. MSNBC, which is now at some hours beating Fox News Channel in the ratings, has urged viewers to make some popcorn. It will be dramatic. Comey will be asked if he believes Trump tried to get him to drop or minimize the FBI criminal and counterintelligence investigations into Russian interference and possible campaign collusion. He will be asked if any pressure from Trump struck him as an attempt at obstruction of justice. Comey will be asked if he told Trump three times that Trump himself was not under investigation, as Trump has claimed. Did Comey say that three times to Trump, or twice, or once, or not at all? Former aides to Comey say he considered several ways to answer Trump's question since he was expecting it, but they say they don't know how Comey decided to answer. Comey will be asked about that tomorrow. He will be asked about the copious notes he reportedly took immediately after those meetings and about his habit of writing down anything that struck him as suspicious or just odd. And he didn't just write down what was said. He wrote where they were positioned or seated in the room and what the mood was. Reportedly, after every meeting and every phone call, we don't yet know if Comey will bring these notes with him when he appears in that committee room. And Comey will be asked about his firing by Trump, about the three alleged requests for a loyalty pledge from Comey. 
It's a chance to compare Trump's word with Comey, since Trump claims he didn't ask for Comey's loyalty. Remember Trump's tweet, James Comey better hope there are no tapes, exclamation point. It's Trump's integrity on the line against the word of a widely respected former FBI director who takes copious notes. Trump could have stopped this, or at least much of Comey's testimony, by invoking executive privilege. But that's what Nixon did, and we know how that turned out. To claim executive privilege over conversations with Comey might make the president look guilty of, if nothing else, obstruction of justice, the charge that brought down Nixon. But the White House says the president reserves his right to executive privilege. So for now, James Comey, the private citizen fired from the FBI, will have eyes glued to screens across the country as he talks to the Intelligence Committee. And what Comey says could lay the groundwork for Trump's impeachment for obstruction of justice. I wish him luck, said Trump last night. The Washington Post this morning reported that Trump is furious, frustrated, and defiant and spoiling for a fight with Jim Comey. The Post cites 20 sources for this report, including White House officials, friends of Trump, and top Republicans who are in a position to know. Trump supporter Newt Gingrich says no one should be surprised Trump's taking on Comey. Quoting Newt, he's not going to let some guy like Comey smear him without punching him as hard as he can. Trump friend Roger Stone says he's not going to take an attack by James Comey lying down. Stone says Trump is a fighter, a brawler, adding, and he's the best counterpuncher in American politics. We've also heard that Trump plans to live tweet during Comey's testimony to try to distract from it, derail it, or discredit it. But Trump's staff tried to pack his schedule for Thursday to try to keep the tweets to a minimum, to try to get him to focus on his agenda or anything else. The Post says Trump's staff is nervous, being careful what they commit to paper now and considering hiring personal lawyers. The Post says Trump is frustrated that his agenda is stalled by what he sees as fake news and a witch hunt. And the war room he was setting up to handle the investigation into Russia and into his son-in-law, that war room never happened. The plan fell apart because of ongoing internal power struggles among White House officials. The White House is still without a communications director to coordinate the administration's statements to the media just as the Russia investigation gets deeper. Trump's also having trouble finding qualified big-name outside lawyers who are willing to defend him. Investigative reporter Michael Isakoff says top lawyers at at least four major law firms have said no, partly because they worry Trump wouldn't take their advice and partly because they're afraid an association with Trump would be bad for their reputations. Some said they were just busy with other clients and cases. Some are also concerned Trump won't pay them, just as other lawyers have been stiffed by Trump and his companies over the years, including contractors and even the lowest-level employees. The Washington Post, in its report this morning, says Trump increasingly spends his time alone watching the news on the 60-inch screen in his small study just off the Oval Office. He has snapped at his own lawyers and political advisors for advising him to back off the tweets and to be careful and to run thoughts past them first. But the Post says Trump's made it clear to those advisors he'll post what he wants when he wants. I will also be live-tweeting tomorrow reports on Comey's testimony and whatever Trump might tweet in response. I'm also considering a special report to sum up Comey's testimony and other related news that day. 
Also testifying tomorrow are Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and acting current FBI Director Andrew McCabe. Their testimony may be valuable and will also be covered in my updates. Today, we heard from two men who might know a lot about the firing of James Comey and whether it was an attempt by Trump to kill the Russia investigation. But we didn't hear much. Neither would talk about conversations they've had with the president, and both said they felt no pressure from Trump to end the investigation. The Washington Post had reported that National Intelligence Director Dan Coats had been asked by Trump to talk with Comey to get Comey to back off. I don't believe it's appropriate for me to address that in a public session, said Coates today. NSA Director Mike Rogers also testified, but also refused to talk about any conversations he may have had with Trump about the Comey investigation. Rogers would only say that he's, quote, never been directed to do anything I believe to be illegal, immoral, or inappropriate. Rogers said he didn't recall having been pressured. Mark Warner, the top-ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, said he was disappointed in the non-answers from both of today's Trump administration witnesses. Trump, by the way, has now nominated Christopher Wray as the new permanent head of the FBI, pending his confirmation by the Senate. Wray worked in the George W. Bush Justice Department and has also represented New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Now back to Jeff Sessions. The attorney general from Alabama was an early supporter of Trump, campaigned hard for Trump, appeared at rallies for Trump, and defended Trump fiercely. But now the White House won't even say the president still has confidence in Jeff Sessions. Trump has been upset with Sessions ever since Sessions mostly recused himself from the Russia investigations in the FBI and at the Justice Department that Sessions otherwise oversees. Despite Sessions' loyalty to Trump, the two of them have had some heated discussions lately, according to a source close to Sessions who's spoken with CNN. And a senior administration official says Sessions was so struck by Trump's displeasure with that recusal that Sessions offered to resign if that's what the president wanted. The State Department says Sessions is not stepping down. Still more about Sessions later in this segment. Thanks to a young woman in Georgia who may be going to prison for 10 years, we found out this week that Russia had done more to interfere with our election process than we knew. A 25-year-old employee for a government contractor, this woman with top-secret clearance, sent a redacted top-secret NSA document to reporters. This NSA analysis claims Russian military intelligence sent spear phishing emails to 122 local election officials just days before the election, to access the software that determines which voters are legally registered and eligible to vote. This is the first evidence that Russia did more to interfere than just hacking the Democrats and posting fake news on social media. This was the Russians trying to affect the actual voting. To get in, Russian military intelligence used credentials they'd stolen from a voting software company in Florida. The emails sent to election officials around the country a little over a week before the election contained malware, viruses, to access those voter registration rolls. Russia denies this, of course, but a report in January showed that the Kremlin had ordered a massive propaganda effort to, quote, undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability. The release of that top-secret analysis was a dose of reality. Reality Lee Winner, the young woman from Georgia, who was arrested at her home, reportedly admitting to everything, printing the document, 
redacting it and sending it to a news outlet. As the Trump administration cracks down on leaks, reality was arrested on the same day, two hours after, in fact, the NSA document was published. She faces up to 10 years in prison and likely knew that when she brazenly did this with little or no attempt to cover her tracks. Mark Warner, the aforementioned ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, says Russian attempts to affect the actual vote count went even farther than what we learned just now from that NSA document. Warner says the Russians targeted even more states than the ones potentially affected by the hack of that Florida software company. He says Russia was still trying to affect the vote on Election Day itself. Quoting Warner, the extent of the attacks is much broader than has been reported so far. Warner wants the NSA to declassify the number of states hacked and the names of those states. And Warner wants to hear from those states themselves. And he says that states should not be embarrassed to admit finding evidence of attempted interference. Warner says without action, this could happen again in next year's midterms, again even in 2020. There are many upsides for Russia in the chaos now underway in the U.S., including the chaos itself. And although Russia hasn't gotten most of those pesky sanctions over Crimea lifted, Trump did give back the U.S. diplomatic facilities that were taken away by Obama as punishment for interfering with our election process. Even Obama didn't know back then what we all know now thanks to that leaked NSA analysis. So Russia's getting its housing-slash-spy facilities back. In return, the U.S. is getting nothing. Quoting former U.S. Ambassador Michael Freed, to rush something through and to give the Russians something for nothing struck me as a terrible idea, still does. And there was a rush by the Trump White House to ease sanctions on Russia almost from day one, according to respected investigative journalist Michael Isakoff. By his report, Trump officials almost immediately ordered State Department staff to develop proposals to lift the economic sanctions on Russia for its invasion in Ukraine and to return those diplomatic compounds and to get nothing in return. Some career public servants in the State Department were alarmed and started buttonholing leaders in Congress to quickly pass laws to stop the Trump plan. Congress has not acted on that yet, and it appears to be too late to keep Trump from giving back to Russia what Obama hath taken away. But virtually from day one, Trump's been working to make life easier for Russia after it worked to make life easier for him. These revelations cast new light on Jared Kushner's desire for a back channel of communication with the Kremlin. Even with the continuing waterfall of revelations, even with the must-see TV of James Comey, this president has troubles, and the rollout of Trump's infrastructure plans this week will not distract from those troubles. Just in the past week, we learned of a possible third meeting between Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Russian ambassador kept secret by Sessions. It's Sessions caught in another lie. After telling Congress he didn't recall meeting with Sergei Kislyak at a reception and then being confronted with the fact that he did, Sessions admitted to that meeting and didn't mention that he circled back to that reception later for a secret meeting with Kislyak. It now appears Sessions could be charged with obstruction of justice. The attorney general, the top-ranking lawman in the country, the head of the Justice Department, suspected of obstructing justice. 
at the very least committing perjury, lying under oath. Two Democratic senators, Patrick Leahy and Al Franken, have asked the current acting FBI director to investigate these perjury charges. And they say that if the FBI determines there's evidence Sessions lied, then Sessions, they say, should resign. And in his pursuit of the facts about Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, special counsel Robert Mueller's preparing to expand his investigation to include Sessions and Sessions' current deputy AG, Rod Rosenstein. Rosenstein now says he may have to recuse himself, as Sessions had supposedly done, as Mueller also investigates the firing of James Comey. Special counsel Robert Mueller is conducting a separate investigation into Manafort, taking over the FBI's criminal investigation into Manafort's business dealings with a former Russian-backed government in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the FBI and Congress are investigating a campaign event last spring that included Jeff Sessions, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, and Sergei Kislyak at Washington, D.C.'s infamous Mayflower Hotel. Five informed sources tell NBC News they're aware of classified intelligence about a private meeting between Kislyak, Trump, and others. The fundraiser was sponsored by a pro-Russian think tank. Again, a matter for the special counsel. It also wasn't good for Trump when we heard two very different explanations of the secret meeting Jared Kushner held with a Russian banker at Trump Tower. The White House said it was a diplomatic visit, and that's a problem since Kushner didn't mention that meeting in his security clearance application. But the bank says the meeting was about a loan for Kushner's real estate company, which also looks bad since Kushner was also representing an incoming president who could affect Russia policy. And on top of it all, the Trump administration has issued more than a dozen waivers for its people, waivers from the rules of ethics, including conflict of interest. Fourteen top advisors lobbied for private companies before signing on with this administration, despite Trump's early executive order that lobbyists not be employed by his administration until they'd been out of those jobs for at least two years. And then Trump's White House started handing out waivers to top officials who didn't meet that requirement. Among those getting waivers, Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, White House Counsel Don McGahn, and Mike Pence's Chief of Staff Josh Pitcock, now, the Office of Government Ethics is asking the White House to explain why it issued these waivers without dates or signatures on them and whether that means they were issued retroactively. Quoting the head of the Ethics Office, there is no such thing as a retroactive waiver. If you need a retroactive waiver, you have violated a rule. Issuing a waiver after the facts won't fix that problem, end quote. And problems this president's got. The pressure is building on an increasingly nervous Republican Congress, meanwhile, although that Congress has so far been unmoved by many of the Trump-Russia revelations that could change, or Congress itself could change with next year's midterm election, if we all make it that far. How serious is it that the U.S. has pulled out of the Paris climate deal? Trump gives his Muslim ban a new push, and the resistance lives after this. When I was just a toddler, I'd follow closely behind my father, and he didn't always know it. One day, we passed through a doorway, and he closed the door behind himself, accidentally trapping me between the main door and the storm door. It's a very narrow space. 
He found me quietly waiting there as soon as he'd noticed I wasn't behind him anymore. He loves telling that story and others, and we bond with laughter. It's the little things, isn't it? So what thoughtful little thing can we do for our dads on Father's Day this year? Something personal, perhaps something practical. A nice shave set from Harry's might be the answer. It's the quality I've been telling you about all along. The balanced handle, the trio of Harry's famous five-blade precision cartridges, and their foamy, moisturizing shave gel. Starting at just 15 bucks, 10 if you use my discount code. Or check out Harry's limited edition Father's Day set with the storm gray handle, a chrome razor stand, the foaming shave gel, three replacement blades, a travel cover, all in a gift box with free custom engraving and a card if you'd like. And save $5 off any set if you enter my code R-E-L-M at harrys.com. H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And remember to use the code R-E-L-M at checkout. It helps the show and it helps you figure out Father's Day. That's harrys.com with the checkout code R-E-L-M. And happy Father's Day to my dad and yours. No take backs. Now that Trump has pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, the leaders of Germany, France, and Italy say there's no coming back, no renegotiating, as Trump had proposed. They are probably, but not completely correct about coming back. But it might not matter. Despite Trump's announcement, the U.S. cannot pull out of the deal before the day after the 2020 presidential election. A new president could renew our commitment on day one. In the meantime, we're still in, no matter what Trump says. And it may not matter since so many companies, states, counties, and cities across America say they will honor the accord or try to do even better than those standards to help slow climate change. California, having the sixth biggest economy in the world, is teaming up with Canada, Mexico, China, and other countries to meet or beat the Paris standards. California Governor Jerry Brown met with the Chinese President Xi Jinping yesterday in Beijing to shore up that partnership. In Trump land, meanwhile, the priority is the fossil fuel industry. One by one, said Trump, we are keeping the promises I made to the American people, adding, believe me, we have just begun. He also wants to disable and dismantle the EPA. He's already stripped pollution rules and opened up offshore drilling. Trump's on record calling climate change a hoax. Of course, he'd also claimed it was a hoax created by the Chinese, and yet with the U.S. out of the accord, it's China that will get the most jobs in the burgeoning alternative energy industry. Outside Trump land, the rest of the country and the rest of the world know that phasing out fossil fuels as soon as possible is vital to the survival of the planet. It was the United States that helped create the Paris Accord, and it was because of the U.S. that so many other countries joined, 195 countries, including our closest allies and our fiercest enemies. The U.S. is the world's second worst polluter, just behind China and just ahead of India. China is not only still in, it's the technology leader in the alternative energy business and a model for the world. India's prime minister says his country will meet and exceed the Paris standards above and beyond, to use his words. He called it, quote, part of our duty to protect Mother Earth. The European Union, still including the UK for now, is the planet's fourth biggest polluter, and it plans to spend tens of billions of dollars over the next four years on making alternative energy happen. 
Some observers say the Paris Accord might be better off without the interference or foot-dragging from a U.S. president who isn't really on board. Here at home, states, counties, cities, and corporations are not each going it alone. They've formed coalitions to work together to abide by the Paris Accord. Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Salt Lake City are in that coalition, which also includes Pittsburgh. That's amusing since Trump, in making his pullout announcement, said he was elected to represent the people of Pittsburgh, not Paris. 80% of the Pittsburgh vote went to Hillary, and now Pittsburgh's part of the coalition to meet the goals of Paris in spite of Donald Trump. Former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg's coordinating this coalition, and he plans to take its plan to the United Nations. Bloomberg says we're going to do everything America would have done if it had stayed committed. California, New York, and Washington have established their own group, the U.S. Climate Alliance, and together they represent 68 million people and 20% of this country's gross domestic product. American corporations also support the Paris Agreement, including ExxonMobil, Shell Oil, ConocoPhillips, Dow Chemical, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, General Electric, Blue Cross, Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Adobe, Levi Strauss, The Gap, Tiffany, M&M Mars, Disney, Tesla, and even big coal companies, including Peabody and CloudPeak. But the presidents decided to go another way, and to mostly go it alone. Speaking of abandonment, Bob Iger of Disney and Tesla's Elon Musk quit Trump's advisory boards as soon as Trump announced he was pulling the federal government out of the climate deal. I've done all I can, says Musk, who told Trump he would quit if Trump nixed the Paris deal. Iger says he quit as a matter of principle. The acting U.S. ambassador to China also quit over Trump's Parisian pullout. China now the world leader in combating climate change, not the U.S. The president decided to ignore almost everyone except advisor Steve Bannon and Trump's EPA secretary Scott Pruitt who advised him to wriggle out of the agreement the U.S. just signed seven months ago. Environmental groups this week filed suit against the EPA for ordering a 90-day freeze on some of the clean air rules for the oil and gas industry. A coalition of environmental groups asked an appeals court to block the Obama administration rule that would reduce methane emissions, which are 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. But the EPA's freeze on the rule also allows continued dumping of benzene and formaldehyde into the air, endangering the low-income people who live near oil and gas facilities. That rule would have reduced those emissions by 90%. Both rules were inspired by the Paris Climate Accord. The environmental groups say their lawsuit is the first step in fighting back against Trump's decision to pull out of that Paris agreement. They plan to file more lawsuits. In the meantime, the oil and gas industry is pleased and says it looks forward to working with this administration. But an ABC News Washington Post poll this week shows that nearly 6 in 10 Americans oppose what Trump has done and believe it has weakened the United States as a world leader. Having given up its role as a world leader by withdrawing from the Paris Accord, the Trump administration may be further isolating this country from the rest of the world. The White House is thinking about pulling out of the United Nations Human Rights Council. Trump's U.N. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, said the council has too many members from countries that are guilty of human rights abuses. She cited Venezuela as an example. 
Haley also says the Human Rights Council is too anti-Israel. This wouldn't be the first time. The George W. Bush administration did boycott the Human Rights Council for a time for similar reasons. President Obama put us back in so we could try to use our considerable influence on some of the more human rights abusive countries. Trump appears to be going for broke over the Muslim ban he promised in the campaign, and in the process he may only be hurting his own cause. In the first version of the executive order that Trump issued soon after taking office, there were exemptions for Christians and other references to religion. Naturally, lawsuits were filed. Uh, The courts put a stop to the ban because of its religious discrimination. Trump's Justice Department went to work revising the order, removing the religious language, but the courts batted it down again, saying the intention was the same, religious discrimination. From coast to coast, federal judges have also ruled that Trump's tweets and campaign speeches are evidence of that intent, and by his latest tweets, Trump's only made his battle harder to win. The administration had also said the ban was temporary, 90 days to put his extreme vetting plan into place. Well, he's been in office 138 days now, and in another loose-lipped tweet, Trump says extreme vetting is already underway which kills another argument for that 90-day ban. Trump's Muslim ban lost in every court at every turn, even the federal appeals court. Now it'll be up to the U.S. Supreme Court, but probably not until the court reconvenes in October. A frustrated Trump apparently can't wait that long, even though courts have also ruled he's shown no direct need for this order. Terror acts so far have been committed only by those who are citizens of the U.S., not those who immigrated here. But Trump's asked the Supreme Court for an expedited hearing, nevertheless. And in another Twitter fit on Monday, complete with the usual exclamation marks and capital letters, Trump slammed his own Justice Department for watering down the ban to try to please the courts. While he awaits a Supreme Court ruling on what he calls the politically correct version of his order, Trump's even calling for a return to the original order. Trump believes stacking the court with conservatives, as he has, there's a chance the justices would even approve his original ban. At the same time, Trump is struggling with the court's role in our American system of checks and balances, calling them in a tweet, slow and political. And Trump and his people are still struggling with what to call that executive order. After campaigning it as a Muslim ban, Trump administration lawyers called it a travel ban to try to get it past the courts. Later, Press Secretary Sean Spicer would insist it's not a Muslim ban or a travel ban. In a Monday morning tweet storm on the subject, Trump called it a travel ban. In all caps, of course. Forbes magazine's website has an article today claiming that Trump shifted money for a children's cancer charity into his business. Facts and opinions on that in this week's special commentary from Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Eric Trump might be the derpy one, but he seems to care about kids with cancer. Underscore seems. While it's true that Eric, according to a bombshell report published by Forbes, has raised around $11 million for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, along with an additional $5 million for similar groups, new details about the Eric Trump Foundation almost entirely undermine his philanthropic efforts. 
Every year, Eric holds a charity golf tournament for his B-list celebrity pals. And because he uses facilities owned by the Trump Organization, not the foundation, the for-profit family business, most of the donations go directly to the sick kids without any concern about overhead. Eric told Forbes, quote, We get to use our assets 100% free of charge. Well, good for you, Eric. Too bad you lied. It turns out that Forbes's Dan Alexander discovered that the Trump Organization was paid more than $1.2 million from the Eric Trump Foundation, far more than would be necessary for the annual single-day events at Trump National Golf Course in Westchester County, New York, even with the high-class Hooters waitresses on hand. Yes, really. Tax records show that costs for the tournament skyrocketed up to $322,000 per tournament, which Forbes as well as golf tournament experts were unable to justify through their own independent accounting of costs for such an event. Eric told Alexander, however, that expenses were, quote, somewhere around 100 grand. Yeah, that looks like a big fat lie. Making matters uglier for the Trumps, it appears as if Eric injected $100,000 from the donations his foundation received into the Trump organization, effectively stealing money from kids with cancer and giving it to his own family to spend on whatever the hell the Trumps indulge themselves with. But wait, there's more. Eric also reportedly nabbed another $500,000 in donations, and instead of giving it to cancer organizations as promised, he donated it to other Trump-related charities. So a significant chunk of money, which donors thought was earmarked for cancer kids, was given to unrelated charities instead. Some of those charities later held, quote, golf tournaments at Trump courses. Simply put, Eric took money from cancer kids, gave it to other charities, some of which pumped money back into the for-profit Trump organization. At best, this is illegal self-dealing, bordering on money laundering. At worst, it's monstrous. Under the guise of raising money to help sick and dying children, Eric Trump just skimmed hundreds of thousands of dollars for use by his own family, ostensibly to buy more helicopters, more KFC, more hair products, and more golden columns for Trump Tower. And what about the president's involvement? Hang on to your lunch. Alexander reported that Donald Trump demanded that Eric's charity begin paying its own way rather than getting freebies from the family business. In other words, Trump demanded that a non-insignificant chunk of the charity's donations, again earmarked for dying children, be instead paid to the Trump organization. Ian Galuli, director of marketing for the Westchester Golf Course, told Forbes, quote, I saw that Eric was getting billed. I would always say, I can't believe his dad is billing him for a charitable outing. Believe it. We don't need any more evidence that the Trumps are sociopathic monsters, but it seems that every day we're learning more and more about the mob-style financial dealings of the president. Of greater concern is the idea that Trump could be trying to set himself up as a Russian-style Putin-esque kleptocrat here in the United States, exploiting his position to hoard as much cash as possible. And now we know that not even dying children will get in the way of that nefarious endeavor. But I suppose we should be grateful for Eric's obvious dumbness. Every time he's in the news, it's another damaging story for Trump's finances. Perhaps Robert Mueller and the various congressional committees should subpoena Eric. The parade of derp would be breathtaking. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on the Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. And I'm proud to now be one of the regular guests on that program. 
Tens of thousands of Americans again rose to be heard over the weekend, staging anti-Trump protests in 130 cities, including New York, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, Los Angeles, and Portland. There were anti-Trump protests in cities around the world as well, including London. Those protests here and abroad were called a march for truth. Voters want the truth about Trump and Russia, and their protest was a call for an independent investigation. There are three main investigations underway already. The FBI's, now under the direction of an independent special counsel, and the bipartisan committees in the House and Senate. Protesters also demanded the release of Trump's hidden tax returns and carried signs against his immigration policies and for his rejection of the Paris Climate Accord. There were pro-Trump demonstrations as well, fewer of them, however, with smaller turnouts, but just as enthusiastic. And sometimes the two sides clashed, especially in Portland, Oregon, where there's still a fever after a man murdered two men on a commuter train who tried to stop him from harassing two young Muslim women. In court, the alleged killer shouted about free speech. Clearly looking for trouble, so-called Trump supporters staged a free speech rally. And trouble they got. Police used stun grenades and pepper spray to break up a melee involving bricks and bottles. Fourteen people were arrested. It was drug company greed that brought us the current national opioid crisis. The state of Ohio is suing five drug makers, accusing them of misleading doctors and patients about the addiction risks with opioids. Once their drugs were approved, drug makers told doctors there was only a 4% chance of addiction. When the companies allegedly knew the risk was much, much, much higher, the actual addiction risk is 23%, and over 2 million Americans are now addicted. Public health officials say that widespread addiction gave rise to increased use of heroin and synthetics when the prescriptions ran out. Over a half million of us are addicted to heroin. In Ohio alone, 4 billion opioid prescriptions were written between 2011 and 2015. And Ohio isn't alone in taking on Big Pharma over this. West Virginia and Mississippi are filing similar lawsuits. In Georgia, at least a dozen people have been hospitalized this week for opioid overdose in just a 48-hour period, and at least four of them have died. They were taking what they had bought on the street because they were unable to get a prescription to feed their addiction. They took little yellow pills sold as Percocet, but the pills were laced with fentanyl, a drug 10,000 times more powerful than morphine. In 2015, more than 15,000 people died from overdoses of hydrocodone, oxycodone, and fentanyl. This addiction is now the leading cause of death for people under the age of 50. 59,000 Americans under 50 died from it last year. That's up 19% from the year before, which was up 36% from the year before that. We've now lost more lives to opioids than we lost in the entire Vietnam War. The drug companies told us and told our doctors it wouldn't be a problem. Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield says it's pulling out of Ohio next year, which will leave 20 counties in the Buckeye State without any Affordable Care Act marketplace plans. The last company to go says it's leaving because of the uncertainty created by a Republican Congress bent on repealing Obamacare but unable to pull it off. A new study shows that 40% of the people covered by their employer's insurance plan are now on high-deductible plans. 
There's wanting a successful business, and then there's abject greed that grows so ridiculously large it attracts attention to itself in the worst possible way. The company is Mylan, the maker of EpiPen. Not satisfied with a healthy profit and a corner on the market, Mylan raised the price of that life-saving drug product not by a little but a lot. Parents and others were outraged. They went to the fake news media for help. The media got out the word and Congress began to react. Now Republicans and Democrats alike on Capitol Hill want to know how and why Mylan overcharged taxpayers for EpiPens to the tune of more than one and a quarter billion dollars. Earlier, Mylan seemed to admit it had overcharged Medicaid by a half billion by misclassifying the drug as generic. Now, Mylan is under fire by several pension funds whose investors want a new board of directors for the EpiPen maker. And it all started with outrageous exponential price hikes. In a word, greed. The way Delta sees it, Trump's plan to privatize air traffic control would drive up the cost of an airline ticket by 20 or 30 percent. But Delta's one of the few, maybe the only airline speaking up. The others are supporting it, and that makes consumer groups suspicious. One group calls it the creation of an airline-controlled corporate monopoly. In making his proposal, Trump attacked the existing air traffic control system, said it wasn't upgrading fast enough, adding, honestly, they don't know what the hell they're doing, a total waste of money. Under his plan, the FAA would still oversee the controllers who would work instead for the airlines. Same controllers, different boss. Instead of being paid by ticket and fuel taxes, controllers would be paid by the airlines. The Republican Congress is already on the case, and Trump's plan to take air traffic controllers out of the FAA was to be voted on this week. It's part of Trump's focus this week on infrastructure, and it shrinks government by 30,000 jobs, by the way. There's more trouble for United Airlines, this time involving one of its planes. The FAA's fining United nearly a half million dollars for flying a potentially unsafe plane nearly two dozen times, including international flights. A flight crew made note there was a problem with the plane's fuel pump pressure switch. Normally, such a problem would pull a plane out of service for a required inspection. But United kept this 737 in the air for 23 more flights. The FAA says the plane wasn't airworthy on any of these flights. United is asking for a meeting with the FAA. College presidents across the country surely shuddered when they heard the news. The heads of campuses across America all got the same memo. See something, say something. Three former Penn State officials have been ordered to prison for not saying what they saw in Jerry Sandusky. Sandusky is the former assistant football coach convicted of sexually assaulting 10 boys. He will likely die of old age in prison where he was sent five years ago. But now three of the suits in the administration will do time too for covering up for Sandusky from police and child welfare officials. Why no one made a phone call to police said the judge is beyond me. And with that, he sentenced the men to prison a few months to a few years, followed by months of house arrest. All three will also pay fines and perform community service. Racial hatred certainly didn't go away during the Obama administration, but its voice wasn't as loud as it has been since the election of Trump. Incidents are on the rise as more hate groups appear with more members 
and they all feel freer to speak their minds and more. There's been a slew of racial incidents in the Washington, D.C. area recently, including schools and now even the Smithsonian. At the still-new National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., officials found a hangman's noose at the exhibition on desegregation. A noose was also found at the Smithsonian's Contemporary Art and Culture Museum, the Hirshhorn. Quoting a founder and director of the African American Museum, this is a stark reminder of why our work is so important. Should the government be able to track your movements through your phone? How to get into Yale and Peacock in a Liquor Store, up next. It is very, very important that you show your support for this newscast by doing as much of your shopping as possible, especially for Father's Day, through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's extremely important that you go to buzzburbank.com, click on that link, and then bookmark the page and make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or shopping Amazon for the first time, going through my link even just that first time helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door in two days or less for Prime members. I can't say enough about how much I truly enjoy Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership along with music and books and more. And please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. I know some of you do, and thank you. To those of you who already shop through my link, thank you as well. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Is it okay if law enforcement tracks your movements through your cell phone? without a warrant? That's the hot question the Supreme Court has agreed to address when it convenes in the fall. Timothy Carpenter suing the government for using cell tower triangulation to tie him to multiple armed robberies, landing him a prison sentence of 116 years. The rule that law enforcement claim allows them to use that data is in a ruling the Supreme Court made in 1979 before cell phones it says police don't need a warrant to get records the phone company was keeping anyway in the regular course of business. An appeals court has recently ruled that phone companies have to give up that information to law enforcement if police can prove it's relevant to a specific investigation. But the Supreme Court itself has made recent rulings that police generally do need a warrant when it comes to cell phone content and that they need a warrant to use other devices to track a suspect's movements. Privacy groups in the ACLU cite the Fourth Amendment and say law enforcement should no longer be able to use a ruling that was made before cell phones were even a thing. It's even money on which way the court will rule. Uber has fired 20 employees after investigations of sexual harassment, discrimination, and bullying among Uber employees. Seven more have been given warnings about their behavior along these lines. The investigation started after a woman employee said her boss at Uber kept trying to have sex with her and that when she complained to HR, she was told that her boss was a high performer and that it wouldn't be comfortable punishing him. 31 Uber employees are now being counseled or receiving training in appropriate workplace behavior. This next story doesn't really expose anything except the fallibility of humans. We screw up sometimes. When the campaign plane carrying Mike Pence landed in New York after a bout of rough weather, the plane skidded off the runway. 
But weather had nothing to do with that late landing. The pilot and co-pilot miscalculated. Fortunately, no one got hurt and no damage was done, but the National Transportation Safety Board reviews all such incidents. The investigation isn't over yet, but it's already 400 pages long. Here's what's been found so far in fewer words. That the landing was rough and that passengers smelled burning rubber and felt the jet fishtailing. The plane was still 66 feet above the ground when it crossed the end of the runway at 45 miles an hour. By the time the plane stopped, there was mud on the cockpit windows and the plane was surrounded by grass instead of pavement. The crew had overshot their touchdown point by 2,000 feet. The speed brakes hadn't fully extended until after the plane had already traveled more than 1,200 feet down the runway. And we now also have the cockpit recording and the human element. We should have went around, said one of the pilots, meaning gain altitude, circle around, and try the landing approach a second time instead of trying to make that late approach work. My career just ended, said the other pilot. Mine too, said the first. A new study from Stony Brook University shows that NBA players who post late-night tweets don't shoot as well and score fewer points. The study says late-night tweeting leads to subpar performance. Memo to the president? It was coming up on last week's National Donut Day that a donut shop in Denver delivered donuts by drone. Avoiding the obvious reference to drone nuts, they called it Operation Donut Drop with an exclamation mark for emphasis. Because everyone loves donuts, the mayor was on hand sharing live video of donuts from Lamar's being delivered to the city and county government building. But donuts were also droned to the police department, a fire station, and to a mall where people enjoyed fresh-flown free donuts. The Salvation Army was also on hand since it started the annual fundraising event of Donut Day at its Chicago branch in 1938. Donut Day reappears on the first Friday of every June, in case you want to circle the date. Donut style. You might be surprised at what'll get you into Yale. On her application, Tennessee teenager Carolina Williams was asked to write an essay about what she likes to do. Her first thought? Ordering a pizza from Papa John's. So that's what she wrote. Accepting those warm cardboard boxes at my door, she wrote, I will always love ordering pizza because of the way eight slices of something so ordinary are able to evoke feelings of independence, consolation, and joy. As a fellow lover of pizza, wrote the admissions officer, I laughed out loud and then ordered pizza after reading your application. And Carolina Williams was accepted into Yale for articulating such passion. She'd landed a filet mignon of a school, but being Carolina, she made the pizza choice, the passionate choice. She's decided on Auburn University because it seemed more passionate to her. And unlike Yale, Auburn has a Papa John's and a Chick-fil-A right there on campus. Priorities, I guess. Because he'd been stuck on a broken-down subway train, Jarek Alcantara missed his graduation ceremony at New York's Hunter College by three hours. Normally, a rescue train comes along with a breakdown, but the rescue train also broke down. So the friends and family who were there in that same subway car with Jarek held a ceremony for him right there on the train. Jarek started it himself by thanking everyone for coming out. Someone's phone played Green Day's Time of Your Life. 
A friend texted a makeshift diploma to Jarek that read, Certificate of Good Job. You're a nurse now, maybe. Everyone applauded and hugged just as they would have if things had gone as planned. You're, that's Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, are never going to guess what Google says are our most misspelled words. For people in California, New York, Minnesota, and Kentucky, the most requests for spelling help are for the word beautiful. In Alabama, Maine, Michigan, and Washington State, the word pneumonia is a brain freezer. In other states, they have trouble with tomorrow, schedule, and maintenance. And right in the buckle of the Bible belt, they ask a lot for the spelling of the word hallelujah. Google released this data coinciding with the National Spelling Bee, which puts us all to shame and makes us proud at the same time. The big light gray water tower in Sussex, Wisconsin, was due for a paint job and work got underway. By last week, painters had made it halfway around the globe-shaped tank at the top with a coat of primer. In the process, they had painted over half of the town's name, the first half, S-U-S. That just left S-E-X. Naturally, people took pictures so they could share it on social media and always remember that time the big globe just said sex. Within a day, the rest of the letters were gone as well, but it was fun for a while, and no matter what's in the news, we have to keep having fun. And then Wonder Woman appeared in theaters to rave reviews and an opening weekend take of nearly $103 million. It was a huge weekend for Hollywood, and on more than one screen, Captain Underpants opened with nearly $24 million in ticket dollars. The new Pirates of the Caribbean movie opened at nearly $22 million. Can any of this week's new releases do as well? For theaters and showtimes, previews, tickets, and so much more, and to support this free news, please use and bookmark the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. Don't leave your kid or your pet in a locked car or a baby bear, although that one's not your fault. In Colorado, near Colorado Springs, police were called to rescue a baby bear that had accidentally locked itself inside someone's car that had been left unlocked. Police say the baby bear has been, quote, put back in the woods, presumably to do whatever bears do in the woods. And finally, almost as bad as a bull in a china shop is a peacock in a liquor store. The manager of Royal Oaks Liquors in the Southern California town of Arcadia was minding his own business when a customer asked him about his peacock, the one perched on a shelf next to the neon Pabst Blue Ribbon sign. Maybe it liked the bright colors. The customer had said, hey, uh, you have a bird inside your store. And as the manager looked up, he saw the great winged bird take off, flapping its way around a store full of glass bottles. Quoting the manager, it flew towards me. I didn't know they could actually fly high, but it flew up above the counter and on top of the ice cream freezer. Yes, Royal Oak Slickers has an ice cream freezer, too. Manager called Animal Control, which removed the peafowl after waving a net inside a store full of glass bottles as a panicked peacock flew furiously. $500 worth of wine and champagne were casualties of the chaos. The pugnacious peacock is now a resident of the L.A. County Arboretum and Botanic Garden. But stop by Royal Oaks Liquors in Arcadia for an ice cream and a story. As God is my witness, I did not know peacocks could fly. 
I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening, and thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.